And um, we've been going through over the past few weeks, 1 Samuel, as we've been looking at how Jesus is our true and better priest, our true and better prophet, and our true and better king. And it's no exaggeration to say that today's passage in 1 Samuel 8 is one of the great high points, one of the most significant passages of the whole of the Old Testament because of the way that it paves the way for Jesus, who is our true and better king. Just look down if you haven't closed it, um, and if you have opened it up to uh, 1 Samuel 8 verse 22 on page 278. Right down at the bottom of our passage, the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And this is the time from this time onwards where now um, Israel start to have the monarchy, and Jesus is uh, the true and great and better king that all of the kings of the Old Testament ultimately are foreshadowing. This, pre- this prepares and paves the way for Jesus, our true and better king. But as it does so, it raises some profound questions about why we need Jesus as our king. Now, look, I'm conscious as I talk about Jesus being a king, that that may grate with us, particularly from a Western or UK perspective, for a number of different reasons. I mean, first of all, we, we do have a monarch here in the UK, um, whether you're Republican or not, and, um, you know, we have a queen. But, you know, you'll be aware, as I am, that the queen is mostly a ceremonial monarch. It's not to say she isn't very significant, but she doesn't really have ruling power in the same way that the kings of the Old Testament are going to have. And so you may be thinking, look, you know, here in the UK, we have an elected democracy, and we're autonomous, aren't we? And autonomy means auto, self, nomos, law, or rule, literally self-rule. We rule ourselves, each individually, right? I am the master of my destiny. I am the captain of my soul, or at least you are of yours, right? I mean, that's how we often think in the West. And so democracy is a kind of a decent arrangement. We elect our leaders, and we can boot out our leaders when we don't like them, or at least at five-yearly intervals here in the United Kingdom. But we don't need a a king, and so this idea of Jesus being a king, isn't it just a little bit outdated? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that despite our desire for autonomy, we spend a lot of effort in culture crowning kings and crowning queens, crowning our monarchs. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, for example, in sports, how often it is that the latest sports star is touted as the next messiah. I mean, Tyson Fury on the back of last night, right? Beating Deontay Wilder. Sorry if you missed that result. Or Mikel Arteta around in this area of Arsenal. You know, he's going to be the um, Messiah for, um, for Arsenal. You know, whoever the latest sports star is, Ben Stokes on the back of the World Cup. He was the Messiah for England. And what does Messiah mean? Well, it's a biblical word meaning the anointed king. Okay, so you might be saying that's just a bit of hyperbole. Well, think about it a bit more. Why is it that on social media, certain figures have a profound following? They have followers. Doesn't that strike you as a bit of a kingly, you know, queenly, you know, kind of ruling word when you have followers? And um, they do have a real authority in our lives. Or why is it that on magazines, we spend so much effort trying to work out and crown, in inverted commas, you know, the leading person of the year, the most significant businesswoman of the year, or we want to work out who's going to win the Grammys or win the Oscars or win the BAFTAs, and we crown them. We even use that phrase, right? It's anointing language. It's kingly language. These people have real power, real authority in our lives, and yet we also know that none of them is enough. And so what I want us to see from this passage is no matter who it is that we're choosing as leaders, none of them are going to be enough. A few years ago, I remember Rebecca and I um, chatting. She'd had an opportunity to talk to one of her colleagues, one of her surgical colleagues at the hospital um, about Christianity. He was a Muslim. He was very interested. He was asking various questions. 
And as they were talking about God, he kept referring back to their boss at the time, a consultant surgeon, as his reference point for what a God figure would look like in his life. And we were laughing about it because, functionally speaking, this consultant surgeon, Miss Hughes, as she was known, kind of basically served as God in his life. And every time he wanted to refer to, oh, yeah, I understand because God's a bit like this, he'd say, it's a bit like with Miss Hughes. Now, it may be for you, your boss at work. You know, you wouldn't say that, but are they actually the kind of God figure, king, queen figure in your life? Well, come with me and let's look at this passage and see why no human leader, or rather no merely human leader, is ever going to be enough and why we need Jesus as our true and better king. Let's look first of all why no human leader is enough in verses 1 to 3. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and the served, they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Now, here, Samuel is growing old, verse 1, and he has been Israel's leader for a long time, and he's occupied a vital place in the life of God's people. He's been their high priest, having replaced the corrupt and weak leader that Eli was. He's been their prophet. He's brought God's word to them. He's been their judge. That is, he's discerned in matters of justice and given order to the land. And he's been a great leader. And if ever there was a leader, I suppose in the Old Testament, that we could think, well, this is the leader that God's people need, it would be Samuel. I mean, we've seen Samuel over the last seven chapters grow in stature and favor and wisdom and godliness. I mean, he's a remarkable individual. I think of his beginnings. Even before he was born, his life was dedicated by his parents to the Lord. After he had been born, he was dedicated in soul service to the Lord. He grew up in and around the temple, uh, devoting his life, his parents having given him over to the service of the Lord. He was called by God as a great prophet directly. I mean, how many people have that? And we've seen that as he grew and as he established, he grew in godliness and wisdom. We're told not one of his words fell to the ground as he brought God's word to the people. Here's a man of wisdom, of integrity, of character, of discernment. And in, in some sense, the point is that we're supposed to see if any leader could be enough it would be Samuel. I mean, after all, he has two whole books of the Bible named after him. Not even David or Solomon have that. So here is the best of the best. And how does he fare? Well, he does pretty well, right? Chapter 7, he brings a revival after 20 years of God's people turning away from God. He brings a revival as people turn back to God. But then in chapter 8, verse 1, we're told that he experiences that very human problem he gets old. I mean, isn't that telling? Ultimately, no merely human leader can be enough because no merely human leader can last enough. Strength fails. Energy is sapped. Age comes upon us all, some more than others at this moment in time, right? We all feel it. And so every human leader will only last for a certain period of time. Samuel gets old. But more than that, as he gets old as well, he makes some mistakes. First of all, chapter um, 8, verse 2, he appoints his sons as co-judges, as it were. Now, this is a big mistake. 
um, because in uh, Judges chapter 8, where we have one of the, the great judges of Israel, Gideon, he is asked by Israel to appoint his sons as judges. And he says, by no means. That's not what you do with judges. They're not hereditary. Priests are hereditary. Judges are not. They never are in the Bible. So the very fact that Samuel rides roughshod over Scripture on this should concern us. And if we've been reading 1 Samuel, you've been with us here in the past, you'll know from the early chapters that verse 3 has more than a hint of what happened with Eli and his sons when they were corrupt. Verse 3, but his sons did not follow Samuel's ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Eli's sons had done a similar thing. They were corrupt, dishonest, ungodly leaders who distorted the office of priest. And now similarly, it seems that Samuel's sons are going the same way. So we get age, we get bad decision-making, and we get sin. And this is the problem with every human leader. Now, it is worth saying that Samuel is not the same as Eli. Twice we get in these verses an acknowledgement that his sons don't follow his ways. In other words, Samuel is still a man of integrity, even though he has made some mistakes. So he's not the same as Eli. He's not the weak and corrupt leader. But he's not enough. That's the point. He's not enough. And if Samuel's not enough, and he had every chance to be enough, every gift, every bit of training, he was the best of the best. Scripture is saying to us, no merely human can be enough. Now, we've got to get this because I think we, we love to project onto our leaders the ideal that some of them could be enough, even though deep down we know that they'll never be enough. Uh, the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre called this bad faith. It's when you put your trust in something, even though you know it will let you down. And we do this particularly in our multimedia, social media age with our leaders. I mean, I don't know, maybe the last leader who really kind of captured our imagination collectively was Barack Obama. If you remember the kind of the swell of you know, good feeling that there were for many people when he was on the election trail. And many people loaded into him the sense that here's the leader, right? We've been waiting for finally the leader for this generation that we really need. And then what happened? Well, as the familiar failings of all leaders came about, and I do believe Barack Obama was trying to do what was right, but of course no merely human leader is enough. Oh, the howls of indignation by the media, backed up by us. How could you? We believed in you. You let us down. And whether it was Barack Obama or someone else for you, don't we all do that? We set up our leaders. But deep down, we know none of them are going to be good enough or wise enough or they're just not going to be enough. And then when they let us down, we cry out with indignation. Oh, how could you? And social media makes the gap between the ideal and the real even bigger because the airbrushing effect, the photoshopping effect of our leaders, metaphorically as well as literally, makes them look so great. And we buy into the hype for a period, don't we? And then, of course, social media and media does the opposite. It exposes the reality unvarnished. Hashtag no filter. And we see what they're really like. And the gap between the ideal we bought into and the reality is so big. And the disenfranchisement and the disillusionment of a generation is enormous. But isn't the fault really with us? Did we ever believe that there would be such a thing as a merely human, perfect leader? Samuel wasn't enough. No human leader is going to be enough to carry the weight of our hopes and our dreams and our expectations. That's the point. 
No human leader is enough. Not only that, though, one of the great problems and why we need a a king who is a true and better leader, Jesus Christ, is because of our sin and our idolatry. Look down with me at verse 4. So in the realization that Samuel is not enough, all the leaders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you're old. Your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Behind this request for a king is that familiar request of the human heart for God to get out of our lives. Samuel actually, in probably a bit of vanity, doesn't spot what's really going on, that this is not a rejection of him, because Samuel ultimately is not their leader. Samuel is just a signpost to their true leader, God. This, therefore, this request for a king is actually a rejection of God as their true king. Israel really was a monarchy. It was a monarchy with God as the true king. And behind their request, when they say, appoint to us a king, verse 5, to lead us as such as all the other nations have. Why the other nations? Well, it's not just a keeping up with the Joneses. We look at other nations and they're saying we want a king like them. There's more to it than that. And God does the link in verse 8. He says, they have forsaken me and served other gods. In other words, what do the other nations follow? They follow false gods, idols. Idols that until chapter 7, Israel were following, the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of the Canaanites. So behind their desire to have a human king is actually a desire for idolatry, because their desire is that a king who would allow them to follow false gods. That's why God does that link in verse 8 with idolatry. Their desire for a king is actually a desire to serve idols. In other words, Behind their desire for a king is a rejection of God as their true king and a desire to serve the false gods and the false monarchs of idols. Um, Back in my gap year, which was a while ago now, I won't surprise you to know, I was out in New Zealand and um, I saw a sport. I don't think it's like a national sport, not like rugby or you know, or cricket for them, but it was certainly a sport that seemed to get a lot of um, enthusiasm in the bar that I was in. It was called bungee running, and the way that it works is you have a long haul, or in this case, a long bar, and um, there's a bungee cord that's tethered to the wall at this end with a bunch of um, soft, you know, kind of padding, and then there's a flag at the other end of the line, and every individual kind of comes up as a competitor, puts on a harness around their waist, and has to run with as much force as they can to try to grab the flag at the other end of the hall, and to shouts of hysterics and hoops of laughter, the person kind of, you know, tries and tries and tries to get the flag, and then as soon as they grow too tired and don't quite grab the flag, they give up, and they snap back at full speed, whack into the wall here, and everyone laughs their heads off. I say, good sport, a good sport. Now, I remember years later thinking that the human heart is just like bungee running. We put so much effort into trying to be different. This year's going to be different, right? New Year's resolutions. I'm going to be a different person now. I'm not going to go back to that same old error. This time, I've done it for the last time. This time, I'm going to be different. And so we run. And we give all our energy and all our effort to try to be a better person. I'm going to serve God faithfully now. And we run and we run and run. And then it just takes a moment, caught off guard. And we come back smacking into the wall, right? The hard wall of reality of our hearts. That we just default like a bungee cord to sin, to rejecting God. We default like a bungee cord to idolatry, to making false gods, 
functional gods in our lives. It's just every human heart. And here Israel, after the high point of chapter 7, I mean, only a half chapter later, they're back, the bungee cord of the human heart, sin and idolatry. And idolatry for them would have been bowing down to literal, you know, figures, the bars and the asterisks. But for us, it's much more conceptual in the West today. An idol is a, a good thing in our lives that becomes a bad thing because we make it an ultimate thing in our lives. We assign to it ultimate value. And actually, what's behind their request for a king is in chapter 7, we have seen what Samuel has provided them for with. He has provided with them security. They've defeated their enemies and therefore peace, rest from their enemies. And he's a judge. He's provided them with order in their lives, security, peace, and order. Can I suggest to you that whatever it is you look to in your life for security, for peace, for order, that is, functionally speaking, the thing you're looking to as your God. That is what you are making ultimate in your lives. And we all do it, right? I mean, think of the idol of consumerism for many people. Why is it that when the week's going badly, you think, okay, well, just a little bit of shopping, online shopping will make me feel better about myself, will make me feel like my life is not so disordered. It might not even be a conscious thought, but that is in your guts what you feel. And so you log on to Amazon.co.uk, don't you? And just for that moment, the thrill of looking around, and then you buy it, and you get that slight endorphin release, and you feel good and oh, you know, it makes me feel better, like my life is ordered again. Or maybe it's not for you consumerism, maybe it's social media. Did you know that according to most research, somewhere between 41% to 61% of people check their phones first thing in the morning and last thing at night for social media? Now, why do we do that? Why is it that when we're waiting for someone, we can't just wait anymore, but you feel your hand going to your pocket and nervously fiddling and you just log on to Instagram or to Twitter or to Facebook just to see how things are. Well, you know that as you look at it, there's a sense of, oh, you know, I'm just scanning through, but it's more than that, isn't it? You have to check it because it kind of gives a sense of peace and security and order to your life. And so you check it first thing in the morning and last thing at night, just a little check, and before you know where you are, it's half an hour or so is gone, and you're lost in the world of social media, and it feels like an escape from this world, a bit of meaning when everything feels chaotic. Or maybe not for you, consumerism, Maybe not for you, social media. Maybe for you, your career. You know, you think your world is spiraling out of control. Maybe in your home or family life, your friendship group. But when you get into your work, order. I've got order here. I feel like things are orderly. And you say to yourself, everything else can go. But as long as I've got this, then I feel like I've got enough, like I am enough. A good thing becomes a bad thing when we make it an ultimate thing, when we look to it for security, peace, and order in our lives. And this is what Israel wants from the king. And look at what happens. God says to Samuel, warn them. Warn them about this. So verse 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And what was the nature of the warning? Well, I want you to see that as the warning comes, the warning is all structured around six takes that the king will do. The king will take. Verse 11, he said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve. Look at verse 13. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Verse 14. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards. Verse 15. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage. Verse 17, he will take a tenth of your flocks 
And then lastly, and you yourselves will become his slaves. In other words, what does false gods, what does idolatry ultimately do? What are we to be warned about? It just takes. It just takes. It takes everything from you. It promises you everything. It takes from you everything. It delivers nothing. Think back to the idols that I mentioned, consumerism. You know how it works. So you log on to Amazon and you start buying a few things. So what does it do? Well, first of all, it takes your money, right? Having taken your money, of course, you feel the pull for, to give it more, to feed the idol more, because it's never enough. You buy something, but it's never enough, right? There's always something more you can get. So you buy and you buy until you're in debt. So now it's taken your money away from you to the point where you're now anxious because you're in debt. So it's taken your peace and it's taken your security. And now because you're in debt, your life feels chaotic and out of control. So it's taken your order. So it's taken those things from you. It promised you so much. That's the attraction. It's so glossy. But it's just taken things from you. Or think of social media. At the end of a difficult day, I'll just log on just for a bit. It will just make me feel a bit better about myself. Maybe not even a conscious thought, just a subconscious longing, yearning. as the endorphin release of it all. So you log on. First thing it does is take your time. <laughs> because five minutes, but it's never five minutes, is it? Because it sucks you in. And so you're there, and before you blinked, oh, it's an hour. So it's going to take your sleep now, because all the research shows not only does it eat into your sleep time, but you have a bad night's sleep if it's next to your bed. So you're not sleeping very well. And because you're not sleeping very well, you wake up and you've got low energy, so it takes your energy. But it always promises more to you, so you keep feeding it. And so you log on and you think, okay, I'll just look how other people are doing. But as you look at them and you compare yourself to them, what does it do? It takes your contentment. Security, peace, sleep, time, contentment, all gone. Well, think of your career. You know, some of you work really hard your career, and it's not that working hard necessarily means your career is an idol. Please don't hear me saying that. Nor just watching social media is necessarily means it's an idol. It's a, a bad thing when it becomes ultimate in your life. But for some of you, it is ultimate. And so you get that performance review. And what does your boss say to you? Yeah, you're doing pretty well. Just wonder if you could give a... Give us a bit more. Hear the language? Give me a bit more. I don't feel you're really giving your best. Can I have your best? Have your best for this week at the end of the week. That was good. Can we do that again? Have your best for the month. It wants your best. Take. So you give your best. You give your time. But because you're giving your time, you don't have time for other things. So it takes you maybe away from church or takes you away from your friendship group. Take, 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 take. Idols just take. They promise so much. But the Lord wants to warn you, whatever it is in your life that you're crowning, you're thinking, this is ultimate in my life. And if it's not God, it will just take from you. It will promise you the earth. It will leave you with a mouthful of gravel and ashes. It just takes. And yet, isn't it astonishing that despite all the Lord's warnings to his people, they still don't heed it. Look at verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. <laughs> Isn't the human heart a funny thing? You can tell people the truth, but no, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered them, don't give them a king. No, it's not what he says. Isn't it remarkable? 
Despite all the warnings, the Lord said, listen to them and give them a king. What is the Lord doing? Last point, this is the sovereign grace of God in Jesus, our true and better king. Despite the sinfulness of this request, despite the folly of this request, God is going to work through this to bring about the true and better king. In fact, God has already promised that he's going to do it. If we had time, we would refer back to Deuteronomy 17, which happens even before the people enter the promised land of Canaan, where they are now. And God says to them, when you enter the promised land, you will ask for a king. He knew it was going to happen because it's part of God's great plan to ultimately send us the king we need. Jesus, our true and better king. A thousand years later, Jesus would stand in front of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, like this passage, he had just been rejected by his people. They'd rejected him, as they always rejected God. And standing in front of Pilate, Pilate asked him a very poignant question. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responded to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I am a king, but I'm not like the kings of the other nations. I am God, but I'm not like the false gods of the other nations. In what way is Jesus different to all other kings and all other gods, false gods? Well, he doesn't come to take. Jesus himself says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, not to take from us, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is so generous. He's the creator God who gives us life and breath and good things in our lives. He's the sustainer God who sustains every moment and every aspiration in this great and good world. And he is the redeeming God who gives himself ultimately for you, even giving him very self up to death, death on a cross for you. All the other false gods, all the other leaders just say, take, take, take. Jesus says, I will give. I will give myself to you. There's a wonderful feature in the accounts of Jesus' death, which we'll be looking at in a few weeks over Easter, where Jesus, as he is being rejected, The gospel writers write it in such a way they show that that is the moment when he is crowned. So why is it that when he is mocked and spat upon that that is the moment they put the crown of thorns on him? Why is it that the gospel writers recall that they put a purple robe around him even though it's stained with his blood? And they mock him, they say, Hail King of the Jews, because here's the great paradox. As Jesus gives up everything for you, as he's mocked, that is him giving his life for you, that is when he's crowned. As the crown of thorns is pushed on his head and he gives himself to you in pain and in blood and difficulty, that is the moment when he's shown to be the glorious king. He gives everything. He takes by force nothing. He gives it all. Because that is how you know he's the true and better king. In what way is Jesus like the other kings? He's not at all. It is by him giving himself over to mockery that we see his glory It is by him giving himself to the agony of the cross that we see his majesty. It is by him giving himself to the pain and humiliation of wearing a crown of thorns that he wears a crown of glory. He gives. And here's how it works. How do you know that you can trust Jesus not just to be another merely human leader who's going to let you down, to really be the God-man who will never let you down? How can you know? Well, look at the cross. 
Because if he is prepared to give everything for you, even his own life, ask yourself the question, is there anything he'll withhold from you if it's in your best interests? And if he can turn even the hour of his greatest humiliation to the hour of his greatest glory, then that shows he's got complete power over life and death, right? It shows that nothing is beyond the scope of his sovereign sway. So you can trust him with everything. Your heart pulls back and says, but how do I know? How do I know? How, is he, how do I know he's not going to be like the other leaders? You know because of the cross. If he's that generous that he will give everything for you, and if he's that wise that when he gives it for you, it secures his coronation, then you can trust him with everything. As the words of the hymn say, your majesty, I can but bow. I lay my all before you now in royal robes I don't deserve. I live to serve your majesty. Two words of application as I close. Look, most people today, they quite like the idea of Jesus being savior, but they really bristle, and I'm sure you do a little bit, at the idea of Jesus being your king. I hope you can see that Jesus being your king is not him coming and demanding subservience and allegiance from you, though that is his right because he made you. No, he doesn't do that. He comes and says, my, my son, my daughter, I give everything for you. I win your heart, and the safest place for you is to give everything to me as your king because I'm wise and I'm good, but I won't demand it from you. I'll give myself for you. I wonder how you feel about the idea of being Jesus, being your king. Give everything to him. Hold nothing back. Second word of application is I know that many of you who do follow Jesus as your king, like me, often say, Jesus, you can have these parts of my life, maybe 80, 85, 90%, but there's 10% where you think, I just can't give that to you. You don't know what you're asking. It's too precious to me, or I'm too worried about what you'll do with it. Maybe my hopes for the future, maybe my singleness, maybe my job, maybe my conformity to your sexual ethics. Maybe to me saying to people in my office, yes, I do believe in Jesus, despite the mockery, you say, I can't do that, Jesus. Oh, my friends, don't you see? If he has given himself for you, and if he is infinitely wise and infinitely powerful, that there's nothing he's not in control of, why would you hold any area of your life back? Is that not foolishness? Give it to him. His hands are the best hands to hold your life. You'll just make a mess of it, trust me. But with him, he will shepherd you and guide you. He is our true and our better king. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, how we need to hear this and how we need to believe this and how challenging and hard it is, Lord. You know the, in, the uh, inclinations of the human heart, that bungee cord effect of snapping back to sin and to idolatry, that tendency to ascribe to others, human leaders and false gods, the place of utmost importance to crown them in our lives. Sorry, Lord, for when we do that. And how we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for who he is, for being the true and better king, the one who has every authority in heaven and earth, but has all of goodness and love for us, giving himself up for us. Help us to entrust ourselves to him, to give our very selves to him, because he's given himself for us. We ask it for his namesake and for his glory. Amen.